This podcast is edited and partly recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello everyone, welcome to Books Without Borders, the podcast where two people in different hemispheres come together to talk about our favourite things, books. I'm Emma. And I'm Nina. And it's been another one and a half weeks. How are you? How have your last one and a half weeks been? Pretty laid back, honestly, because the teacher who teaches three of my five courses has been away on a research trip, oh. and so I didn't have class for most of the week. Nice. I, I, and honestly, like, I had two classes to attend that were each two days a week, and somehow I managed, I guess, in the like mode of being off of school, to miss two of the four classes I had to attend. <laughs> But that's okay. Not the end of the world. But nonetheless, it's been a really chill week. I've just been exploring Japan. Like, mm-hmm. I went on a couple little day trips with my free time. Nice, nice. Yeah. I went to a cute little, like, mountain town and saw a beautiful view of Mount Fuji. Mm. That was really nice. And then I had a chill week. I've been, I think I mentioned way earlier, you know, in the semester, but that, like, I've been going out more since I've been here just because I guess I've been in a dancing mood. I have friends who like going out, but my friends like going out were on a little trip to Seoul this weekend. So I took a going out break (laughs) and did very little this weekend. Nice, nice. Probably good to have a bit of a rest. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. It's been a lot. It's been like almost every weekend, if not every other. And so I, I, yeah, I don't know if I'm built for it. My (laughs) my knee certainly isn't, (laughs) but it has also been fun. So I don't know. It's an interesting new part of myself to explore. How has your last week and a half been? Okay, I've been a bit up and down, very up and down. Hello, Penny. Hi. (laughs) I've been very up and down in the last week and a half. I've had a few really good days followed by a surprise period, so I'm now not doing so great, but this is how the cookie crumbles, so... (laughs) You know, so it goes, as they say. Exactly. Literally, I was talking to my physiotherapist on Wednesday about the fact that things are going really well with the new routine I was building. And she was saying, well, make sure that you build a plan for, you know, a less well routine as well for days when you're not feeling so well. And we were chatting about the fact that, you know, things like my periods or getting viruses or what have you are not particularly predictable. And literally the next day, <laughs> it's like my body was like, oh, you rang? <laughs> no excuse me I did not ring go away (laughs) but yes so that was interesting oh my goodness what oh baby I miss my cat oh my gosh she's so cute oh I know you're bothered by it but I'm I'm not usually um it's just because I'm trying to record audio here, sweetie. <laughs> yes, I know. Oh, you're adorable, I know. This is why I normally have the door closed, but it's going to get really hot in here if I close the door. This is one of the warmest rooms in the house if I close the door. So, listeners, you might there might just be a lot of this going on today. We welcome it. It's going to be a really fun edit already. Speaking of fun edits, moving forward, we have been discussing having a little bit of a transition between our segments. So, that's that's going to start this episode, and here's your first one. It's time for Recent Reads. What a lovely little song. Thank you. Thank you, Emma, for <laughs> creating that. Thank you very much. There will be a few of those. It's a nice little creative challenge for me. I've had a lot of fun putting some together, so I hope people enjoy those. <laughs> 
I think that'll be a great way to change the pace and add some variety to our sound. I, you know what I really wish they had on podcasts? Sort of like how YouTube has like chapters that you can like go to different chapters in a YouTube video. I wish podcasts could do that for segments. That would be really nice. Yeah, me too. I mean, we could put chapter markings in the show notes. Maybe I could do that. Right, like timestamps. I could do that. I think that. that would, I mean, just based on my own podcasting listening experiences, I would love if people did that. I could totally do that, yeah. So yes, as the jingle has indicated, this is the section where we talk about the books that we've finished reading since we last spoke. This time I finished five books and Nina, I think you said you finished two? Yes, that is correct. All right, so I'll start off. Kick us off. Yeah, I might start with the two books that finished off the Oscar Wilde readathon that Audrey was doing for the read-along in October. So, as mentioned in previous episodes, Audrey's read-along was an Oscar Wilde October, and the last two books that we read were The Canterville Ghost and The Model Millionaire and Other Stories, which was a collection of three short stories. The Canterville Ghost was... Really entertaining. I gave that one 4.25 stars. It was a farcical satire of the gothic Victorian ghost story, and it was a lot of fun. I think I may have discussed it a little bit last time we spoke. The plot is that an American minister and his family have moved into an old English castle haunted by an old English ghost, and the old English ghost is very disgruntled by the fact that the Americans are not scared of him. (laughs) So it's a farce of English tradition, it's a farce of American lack of tradition in, you know, the new ways, and it's also a farce of ghost stories overall. And then it also has a really interesting way of partway through the story becoming more sincere, and it's a really interesting change of tone. As with most of Wilde's writing, as I've discovered in the last month. It's really hard to ever know where he's going to go in a story, even in most of his short stories. He somehow manages some kind of tone shift, some kind of not necessarily plot twist, but definitely tone twist or angle shift. And I really have been enjoying that about his writing. It's just a very interesting way to see kind of how his mind works almost. Yeah, he's, he's got a very interesting view of the world. So I've been really enjoying reading a lot of different works of his. The main reason this is a 4.25 rather than any higher is that because it's a short story, there is a lack of character depth (laughs) of any kind, really. And so it didn't really have any extra appeal for me, and I don't see myself wanting to read it again. But it was definitely an entertaining story. If you're someone who's wanting to read the best of Oscar Wilde, I would definitely say that this would be something that very much represents the kind of stuff he writes and it, you know, in a collection of someone who enjoys Oscar Wilde's writing in general, I would 100% recommend this. The other one that we finished was the three short story collection, which included The Model Millionaire, The Sphinx Without a Secret, and The Birthday of the Infanta. The Model Millionaire is okay. It's a decent story, but not, you know, something that I would write home about. The second story, The Sphinx Without a Secret, I thought was actually really interesting. I thought it had some... The reason I didn't give you any plot about the model millionaire, by the way, is that the entire story of that, it's very short, is there's literally no way to mention what the plot's about without giving away the entire story, so that's why I just haven't said anything about that. The Sphinx Without a Secret is about 
a young man who's captivated by a particularly mysterious and enigmatic woman, and he's like really desperate to unravel what her secrets are. And there's some really interesting commentary in that short story around why a woman would want a secret, or whether men understand women, or why they don't understand women, and there's particular lines in there that hint at the farcical approach that he's taking that could be read in two ways. They could be read as Oscar Wilde agreeing with Victorian men in general and saying like, oh, women are just enigmas, you can't understand them, like, why would they do silly things like this? Or you could read it because it's so farcical as maybe men don't understand women because they're not trying to be understood or because they're not trying hard enough to understand them. So there's a mm. lot of really interesting commentary in that one if you kind yeah. of take a few moments, especially the ending of it, which of course I won't give away. There's a few different ways you could interpret the ending of that one, and the way the guide talks about it in The Audrey Guide is very, very well done. I must say the Audrey Guides for all of the Oscar Wildes were fantastic. Can highly recommend. So at this stage, because that one was significantly better than the first one, it, it would have really bumped up the short story collection rating in my mind. Unfortunately, the third story really, really pushed it back down again. The Birthday of the Infanta is... So it's described as a bittersweet tale of innocence and cruelty in a royal household in 17th century Spain. That is a very generous way to interpret this story. <laughs> it's the most dated thing that I have read this year. Wow. And that includes that says a lot. Jane Eyre. So you know how one of our biggest gripes with Jane Eyre was that you cannot separate the story, you know, from Bertha's race and that becomes right, a problem when you're reading it later? Right. This does that except with the one of the main character being a quote unquote dwarf. Mm. And Yes, you're supposed to sympathise with him, and you're supposed to feel sorry for him, but mm. it's so embedded in yeah. the story and why the story works that it's incredibly badly aged, and it's almost impossible to... Like, you can't read around it. Yeah. And the upsides to this and the reasons that other people were finding it good were that, unlike most of other worlds writing, this includes a lot of really lyrical descriptions of, like, woodlands and forests and, like, really gorgeous settings. And as you know, that's not actually a major thing that I look for in writing. I'm not huge on atmosphere building. I'm more about, like, what the people are doing, what they're going through. And so I didn't get a lot out of that. And therefore, the things that I was looking for were horrific. Yeah. And essentially, the overall... And I don't feel bad about spoiling this one because, you know, anyone who doesn't want this spoiled, if you do want to read this... Maybe skip ahead for the next three minutes or so. Editor's note, it's more like seven minutes. Essentially what happens is there's the birthday of the Infanta, who's like the, you know, the young princess in Spain. And there's like a show put on for her. And during that show, the, and I'm going to use the word dwarf because that's what's used throughout the entire book. There's a dwarf brought out. Wilde goes into very deep detail describing 
what he looks like, very minute detail. The word ugly is thrown around a lot throughout the entire story, basically. He's laughed at, he's mocked, he seems to be enjoying himself, he seems to be quite simple in the head as well, which is extremely bad representation of dwarfism, <laughs> generally. And yeah. he is given a rose by the Infanta because she is delighted by the entertainment she gets from him. And he takes that as a symbol of love. Oh. Yeah, and it's very sweet in a way because he's got a childlike innocence to him, which on the one hand is sweet, but on the other hand is patronising. Very patronising, the way it's depicted. And he goes off to the woods and even the flowers are making fun of him and how ugly he is. There's a few creatures in the woods that are trying to defend him and saying, you know, he doesn't know how ugly he is or it, it's okay, it doesn't matter how ugly he is, he's pure inside or whatever, but like literally all of them are still going, yeah, he is ugly though. Right. And the bush that gave its rose to the princess is really insulted by the fact that he has one of its mm. blooms and it, calling him a thief and all these other things and he's going, no, no, I was given the rose and all this kinds of stuff. And the end... <laughs> The end of the story, he ends up going to the castle at night trying to find the Infanta to go and profess his love back. He walks in and he sees this horrible little creature and he goes, what is that? That's horrible. And then he moves his arm and he notices that the creature moves its arm too and mm. it's a mirror. He's never seen himself before and he's so struck by his own deformity and his own ugliness that he realises that obviously this rose was not actually out of love, it was out of pity or out of laughter or whatever. And he dies of a broken heart or something. Like, oh. it was just such a weird moment that I have almost <laughs> blocked it from my brain. The exact method by which he died. I think it was just something, some nothing poetic thing, like he just died of a heart attack on the spot or something. And then the princess comes out and sees him and goes, oh man, my entertainment has died. Someone find me some more entertainment. And it's, mm. I know that the purpose that Oscar Wilde is getting at is... It's meant to be cruel and it's meant to be, we feel sorry for the dwarf character, but the undertones of it are still that a disabled person couldn't live with how deformed they were when they saw themselves. And yeah, I know it's a social commentary story. I know that. And I know that it's aged poorly, but there's literally no way to appreciate it outside of what it is. It's not like something you can read around, you know? Yeah. And it was just a really unfortunate way to end the Oscar Wilde reading, because I'd enjoyed everything else. It's not something that you can just kind of go, well, that's of the time with a little bit of a reference to racism or something like that. This is a whole story centered around this. And it was just really unsettling way to end the experience. And I really wish I hadn't read it. <laughs> yeah. I really wish I could go back and finish with the Sphinx story because that was mm. good. I wish I could just read it as if it was like a fairy tale creature. I really wish I could, but it was, it was not described that way. It was described exactly how people with like clinical dwarfism are, except with uglier words right. and a misunderstanding of how their cognition works. So it was just really upsetting, honestly. Yeah, it's like a sour note Yeah, to end on. I mean, and that's an understatement. So, yes, that was mm. 
unfortunate. Did Audrey have anything interesting to say about it? Well, they mostly focused on the fact that it is meant to be a commentary on the fact that people can be really cruel, and there are overall themes in pretty much all of Wilde's works around people judging people based on how they look, and that is clearly the intention of this story. Wilde clearly is not making fun of this character, he's clearly trying to make this character sympathetic, but unfortunately the attitudes of the time and the lack of awareness does mean that he still treats this character as if he's not human. I mean, it's... It's a weird one because clearly what he's trying to demonstrate is that if people were kinder to those who were different, he wouldn't have felt the need to die of a heart attack when he saw himself because if people were more accepting, he would have been like, oh, okay, that's just me, that's fine, whatever. There wouldn't have been a need for any of that, any of the cruelty, any of the death, any of the loss. But I think just from a lens of how dwarves were treated at the time. They were part of freak shows. They were treated like animals. They were, you know, and I, I feel uncomfortable even calling them dwarves because, you know, they don't go by that. Yeah. But, you know, that's what they're called in the book and, and that's, that's what I'm sticking with for consistency. But obviously, you know, people with dwarfism specifically within the little people, you know, because little people covers a, a broad spectrum for, for those who might not be aware. Not all little people have dwarfism. Dwarfism is a specific condition. So that's why I'm using the word dwarfism as well, in case people are wondering why I'm not just saying little people. It's a specific disorder. Mm. But yeah, people with dwarfism were put in freak shows. They were abused horribly. And within the context of that knowledge, this story just seems really distasteful. Like if you'd written it about like an ugly kid or something in general, it would have maybe got the same point across. You know? Right, right. I feel like that's really strongly a test of is this necessary? Like, is this a reflection of cultural times? Or is this maybe an ignorant bias regardless of time period? It's like, is this sort of dehumanization necessary? Like, could it have been done in another way? Yeah. So, yeah, apologies for anyone who didn't want that spoiled. It's almost impossible for me to have talked about it any other way. It is a short story, so hopefully people won't be too mad that I talked about this with spoilers, but there was really no other way for me to talk about it, and I felt like it needed to be talked about. Understandable, understandable, especially as it is your last read and it really leaves a sour note on the chapter you're closing on. Yeah. Oscar Wilde. Yeah, absolutely. It's unfortunate. So it is, yeah. Overall, I did still give that collection three stars just because the Sphinx story was very, very good. Like, if it was that on its own, I probably would have given it, like, a 4.25. And mm. then the Infanta story, because it was still... Like, the writing was still beautiful, that would have been, like, a 2. And then the Model Millionaire was somewhere in the middle, but probably closer to because it's still very well written, but probably like a 3.75. So averaging all out, I, I kind of just put it at a three because I didn't really know what else to do <laughs> and would do with it. Yeah. Which is, you know, the downside to short story collections because you just kind of don't really know how to deal with that scenario. But I very much cannot recommend that last short story. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, not everything needs to live on to the future. No. I need to take a little break to calm down my thoughts. So how about you talk about your first book that you finished in the last week and a half? Sure. So my first read for the week was actually a book I had to read for school, oh. but 
I enjoyed it so much. Oh, awesome. I actually rated it 4.25. Great. Yes. It's called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. Mm -hmm. And it tells the story of when he was given the opportunity to give a lecture in a series called Last Lecture that was something going around in the sort of academic community at the time. He was a college professor Mm -hmm. in the U.S. So the theme of the lecture series was to like capture the essence of like what would your parting words to the world be or what would Mm. be your last statement your last lecture and randy pausch was in an interesting situation because he had just been diagnosed with a terminal cancer and so it was truly his last lecture and at the time of the lecture i think he was given like a three to six months kind of diagnosis and it was a really pivotal moment, you know, in his life. The video became viral soon after because it tells a really beautiful story about his childhood dreams and how he achieved them and the lessons he's learned in his life. And it really just has this beautiful overtone that's quite clear, I think, early on in that, like, this lecture isn't necessarily for the world, although it is. It's, like, more of his last words for his children who were... I think maybe six or seven at the time. I think he had two or three kids. So it was a really, really touching story of like, this is what I want my kids to remember me for and to like take into their life. And like, I won't be able to give them these pieces of advice just throughout their life. So I'm going to do it all now type of thing. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really, really moving. He was a young guy. He was 47. And yeah, he had a very happy marriage with three children. He was a very like upbeat guy. He was like a driving force in the virtual reality computer science community. Yeah. In like 2008, he did a lot of leading research on that. So he was like a very like valuable intellectual and just a very like clearly heartfelt thoughtful person. So my, my class, my honors course, had us watch this lecture because we're ultimately doing a project in which we'll be creating our last lecture. What at this point in our life would we want to include in that sort of presentation? <laughs> and so this was sort of like an inspiration and I just found it to be so moving. I watched the video lecture that went viral twice actually. It's like an hour long, but it was so moving. I like actually took notes and like have not just put them into like my class notes, but also like my journal, you know, he, he had some really beautiful words to say. And then I read the book which he wrote I think a year later so he outlived his diagnosis Mm. like I said I think he was given a three six month diagnosis at the time of the original lecture and I think he lived a year past that lecture about or maybe a little under a year and in that time he I think reflected further on the lessons he was trying to summarize in that lecture and so he wrote a book going into the process of making the lecture and what stories went into it and also just like what his family was going through at that moment and going a little bit more into depth into like the personal aspects of his life and his legacy that he wants to leave for his family Mm -hmm. and for his kids and so it was like things that he probably would have really struggled to say on stage so it was a little bit more touching dude this made me sob (laughs) let me tell you i sobbed at the i could sob right now (laughs) i could could honestly cry thinking about it it was really sweet i mean especially also like being someone who lost a parent at a young age who died at a young age himself yeah it was actually my dad's 50th birthday yesterday oh wow and so yeah that's been on my mind and it was an interesting sort of timing and my dad didn't have the chance to really write 
those things down into a letter. And a lot of family members have said over the years, that like, oh, I wish we, we really said that. Or I wish we really, like, encouraged him to, like, write something down. But they were so consumed in the fight for just being optimistic that he would make it yeah. and that he would get through it that they didn't, you know, ever really truly consider that it would that he would die, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so it was just very moving to read this, or I, I listened to the audiobook to listen to this story that's narrated also by the author. And yeah, just really feel the weight of his words. It, it was just so moving. And I think like this will be something I'll want to reread in the future and take those lessons away from again. How special for his kids to have the audiobook as well. Oh my gosh, I know, I know. And like specifically, um, oh gosh, I could literally cry talking about it. But, like, oh, there's a section where he, like, <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so beautiful and so touching. There's a section where he goes into describing, like, how he knows his children, what he, like, recognizes in them and what he, like, hopes for their future. But also, like, that he'll, like, love them no matter what they do. And it's nice to, like, see how he saw them in that time. And yeah. you can Google them, you know, and they're our age. Oh, his youngest daughter's my age, and I think his oldest son's just under your age. Some of my favorite little takeaways from his lecture and the advice that he gave that I really enjoyed include the following. So one was something along the lines of, at some point, you'll realize that there are things that you want to do, but you just can't do them. So mm -hmm. the second best thing is to stand close to the people who do. He was talking about how one of his childhood dreams was to become Captain Kirk from Star Trek. <laughs> and, you know, you grow up and realize that there are just some things you can't do. And so he ended up... I think working on some sort of like VR project for either a new Star Trek movie or like a video game or something. I can't specifically remember, but he was talking about how impactful it was for him to have his childhood hero come visit his lab and see the work that he was doing. And I just really liked that little piece of advice because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm definitely someone who like always wants to do all the things. Like, I just feel like there isn't enough lives for me to live. <laughs> I only get one. It's so frustrating. So many things I want to do, but there's something really valuable to finding the people who are doing the things that you would want to do, but just can't. And just witnessing that, you know? Hmm. Another one I really liked is that if you don't like someone or like if something about someone is really bothering you, just give them more time. Everyone has a good side and their good side will come out. Just be patient and be present and wait and be like in anticipation of that good side coming out because he's a very optimistic guy. You know, he's very happy, fun. Like what's kind of ironic about his lectures that it's very like silly and playful, even though it has this dark undertone, it's not somber at all. Mm -hmm. He's a very fun guy. And that actually leads me into like one of my other favorite ones, which was that he says like, I will have fun every day I have left because there's just no other way to play it. And I think that applies to everyone. You know, I mean, we're terminally in this condition of life, you know, that will end. And so I think that's just a really great way to see the world, whether your due date is <laughs> three months or 50 years, who knows? But yeah, I just really appreciated his outlook on life and the relic that he left for his family. Yeah, wow. That sounds yeah. super impactful. Yeah, it was a nice short read as well, and the audiobook was great. As I said, it was narrated by the author, so it really had that personal impact. And I think this is going to be something I'm going to revisit in the future, for sure. Yeah. yeah, glad I came across that. Glad my teacher connected me with it. That's fantastic. Yeah, definitely. What's your next read for us, Emma? My next read is a, <laughs> a definite mood shift away from <laughs> Hopeful. 
because I read all in one day, which by the way, terrible idea, but I had to because <laughs> I'd left it too late and I had the book club for it literally the next morning. The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming oh, by no. David Wallace Wells. I read this for a Patreon book club with Lena Norms. We were all like in a Google meet with Lena Norms, like actually there, like talking to her. Like I spoke to her in a conversation, That's so cool. which was very, very cool. And like, because I was the token Australian there and I mentioned that I was up at 6am at one point because I had a brain fog moment and I had to excuse it. I jokingly, <laughs> she remembered my name at the end and I was like, oh my God, at like a full blown fangirl moment. Um... <laughs> I spoke multiple times actually to give the Australian perspective because it's quite different to the UK perspective because overall there's been less impact from climate change to the UK than there has been to Australia just you know in terms right. of natural disasters and stuff but anyway so I was completely noting out from that so it felt worth it but oh boy I would not recommend reading this in one day don't do that don't that was, was, was a mistake I listened to the whole thing in one day it's like an eight and a half hour audiobook and oh, wow. so it was my whole day yeah what it's a, a very day. very depressing day <laughs> that being said, I gave this 4.5 stars. Mm. So this is actually the first climate-focused book I've ever read. I am generally pretty well informed when it comes to global warming, mostly via the Vlogbrothers, because <laughs> they, uh, you know, produce a lot of that content, and also via other YouTubers and other news sources, but I'm fairly well informed, and therefore my... My hope for the governments and politicians and corporations getting it together enough to turn things around has already been pretty low. And so it was kind of nice in a way to have a book that met me where I was at. There's a lot of climate books from what I've heard that are pretty heavy on individual action items, emphasizing going vegan or emphasizing, mm. you know... But honestly, that's the main one is like there's a lot of climate books about going vegan at the moment. That's a big topic. But the thing is, this book really emphasizes how little it is to do with individual action and how much it is to do with hello and how much it is to do with large scale action. And it was really nice to read a book that met me where I was. And it was quite funny because a lot of other people at the book club were really depressed by that. They were like, this book is really bleak and it doesn't give me anything to do and I'm just sad now. And I'm like, honestly, I'm just glad to know that someone else is sad with me. <laughs> I think it's also part of the crime of industries that are the majority responsible for climate change, that they put so much of the pressure on us, like mentally, physically, emotionally creating labor for us to like distract ourselves with guilt and blame, self-blame, when in reality, you know, it's, there's nothing we can do. And, and letting go, I think, of that and choosing individual action for your own purposes yes. and not for a larger thing I think is really freeing yeah. and totally justified. What you just said just then is a perfect combination of what my housemate and what I have been saying when we talk about this topic. So the first half of what you said is a carbon copy of what my housemate says every time I talk about anything to do with individual action. He says exactly what you said. The corporations try and get us to do the work for them when there's nothing we can do. And then I retort with, but at least if I'm doing something I feel like I'm at least trying for at least you know it's for my own benefit for my own brain I know I'm not actually doing a lot but at least if I'm trying I feel like I'm doing something even though I know I'm not it's for my own sake it's not yeah you know, it's to feel like we can do something even though we probably can't do something you know climate change is affecting our health and our well-being
well-being and our stability. Exactly. And it's not just through the climate. It's also through the stress that Uh penetrates our bodies that is created by this very alarming disaster. 100%. And I don't even think it's truly that they want us to start doing the work for the companies. And and not that I think your housemate and I are on the same page. I don't even think it's that the companies want to start doing the work for it, but that they just want us to distract ourselves from what they're doing, you know? Yeah. I was really struck once when someone mentioned to me something that they had been told that like really changed their perspective on individual action and climate change and stuff was how there's this sort of crisis that we face when we want to throw away, for example, like a chip bag, you know, like we have to go through all these lengths to find a specific recycling center for different materials. You know, it's like this weight is like put on the consumer to feel the responsibility to figure it out when the company could really be making the material of the bag out of something that is either biodegradable or is more easily recycled. You know, like, why is it on us to find very niche recycling systems for many individual tools? Because I remember I went to visit once, like, a sustainability center in Denver, and they had this, like, really complex, I mean, impressive recycling system for, like, every specific item you could possibly recycle. And I remember being told, this is not our job. It's the job of the people producing the many, many, many chip bags or whatever it is (laughs) to to produce a product that's more responsible. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. And I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. I mean, the book overall is a collection of, it's a very well-written collection of what's going to happen to various countries, various things, various, like, situations at, like, certain degrees of warming. And Mm. I do highly, highly recommend it for a reminder for anyone who's already educated in climate change for those who kind of aren't really super aware of what the different degrees of warming mean on a practical level I would even more highly recommend it because it is going to affect everyone and on a very large scale if it doesn't slow down and there's a lot of examples in there it's basically a full book of examples. There is a very slightly more hopeful tone at the end of like essentially him saying, look, this is how quickly we've managed to destroy things. Imagine how quickly we could fix things if we actually tried. The reason I'm talking about it so hopelessly is because I have personally got very little faith in governments and corporations in general to give up power, but that's my view (laughs) of the world. Understandable. That's just where I am in my life right now. There are some people who are more positive than I am. Those people have more energy to (laughs) fight the good fight than I do. And that's part of a privilege that I unfortunately don't have. Being disabled is being able to do the things that would actually make a difference, which is, you know, campaigning and hassling governments and doing those sorts of things. Those are the things that are going to make a real difference. I don't have the energy and the bandwidth for that. I wish I did because this is important. And for those people who do have that kind of energy, I would strongly, strongly recommend that you read this book, that you quote this book to people. This was written in 2019 and it's still incredibly relevant. There are some things in it that have become more relevant. By the way, one of the most terrifying things I learned in this book that was brand new information, there are prehistoric viruses stored inside glaciers. Mmm, yep. Heard about this one. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Guess what's gonna happen when they melt? Zombies. <laughs> no, but you think COVID was bad? Guess what's gonna happen? We're gonna have repeats of freaking Stone Age 
viruses or something else, who knows. But if we're not scared of, I don't know, a lot of the countries in the world going underwater, can we at least be scared of something even worse than COVID appearing out of the glaciers, please? Yeah. I'm gonna conservatively guess no. I don't know if people know about that. I don't know if enough people know about that. I didn't know about that. I hadn't thought about it. I mean, I don't think it's like common. I think I learned it in my AP environmental science class in high school, but I don't think it's like a commonly known thing. I just don't think, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. I've, I've lost a lot of faith in like our ability to rally around serious Well, here's issues, the thing. Honestly. Here's the thing. A lot of businesses lost a lot of money during COVID. So maybe if more people focus on the virus thing and they realize how much of a pain it'll be if a whole bunch of people start getting sick from prehistoric viruses, maybe yeah. that'll be more of an incentive. Who knows? Although probably not. Because real estate agents <laughs> keep building beachfront properties that are probably not going to be there if they keep building on... Sorry, I'm... <sighs> Yeah, no, understandable. It's Never mind covering up the marshlands that need to be there because marshlands exist for a reason and Bolsonaro being a one-man... The statistics, that was another one that, that really made me actually go oof out loud was the statistics of Bolsonaro... I, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head and because I listened to it, I don't have it highlighted on my Kindle or whatever, but Bolsonaro, when he was the president of Brazil, okayed so much logging of the Amazon that within a year he produced I think some ridiculous number like three times or more emissions just from that than the entirety of America did. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive yeah. honestly. <laughs> like that's one dude's decisions. Wow. One dude's business decisions. One. Yeah. Hi. I, I mean this is why I have very little faith. I have very little faith in dudes I have to say. <laughs> I'm not I mean and it's not just them. There are a lot right. of corrupt no, no. women out there too. Equal opportunity corruption. It's true. <laughs> Equal opportunity corruption. They just However, happen to be I also women. think the gender gap, the yeah. corruption gender gap is significant <laughs> <Yeah>. as well. <laughs> there yeah. is a glass ceiling of corruption. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh god. Anyway, so this book was extremely well written and the author reads his own audiobook. I highly recommend it. I highly do not recommend reading it all in one day, but it makes for a fantastic discussion book. It's very depressing, right. but it's worth reading. It speaks for itself, honestly. It really does. It really, really does. Can so. I offer you a counter-recommendation? Sure. A book that we read in that AP environmental science class, which really, it was a very thorough class, and I am very grateful that I had the opportunity to take it. Yeah. Because I remember taking it and thinking, how was I, not that I was a functioning member of society at 16, but like, how was I allowed to just be in this world? How are the people allowed to just be in this world without taking this class? Because it changed the way I saw everything, which kind of goes into the book that we read a bit of. I didn't actually read the entire thing. It was like essay or like snippets for the class that we read but it was very informative even in the small portions and so I want to at some point read the whole thing and you might enjoy it as well if you're like on this wave but it's called this changes everything and right. it's about how larger systems of power would have to be changed in order to combat climate change how it's not necessarily about directly impacting well, okay so this book goes a lot into like environmental injustice mm. and larger systems of like poverty and discrimination mm. that enable climate change oh yeah there's a lot that, of like, that in, pave the way there's for, a lot of that in this book too like mentioning like different, yeah i'm different sure, I'm sure. And, yeah 
It is quite America-centric, by the way. That is one of the reasons I couldn't give it, like, a full five stars. You know, it's mm. American author. It's quite America-centric. So right. just a heads up about that. Yeah, yeah. I think this one is kind of as well, talking a lot about, like, race in America okay. and how that mm. impacts the climate. But, yeah, no, I think it's a worthwhile read and one that I hope to finish at some point in my life. I mean... And maybe not, that's that's so broad in my life. I mean, like, maybe in the next decade or five years, yeah. you know, I'd like to read it relatively soon because it's relevant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll only become more and more relevant. Mm. Oh, I do want to make a half correction on something I said earlier about this being the first climate change book I've read. Technically, I think Consumed by Asia Baba would probably count as a climate book. It's a consumerism book, but there's a lot about it that is to do with consuming less for the sake of the environment. Mm. And I was reminded of that book when you were talking about like the difference in impact for impoverished communities versus privileged and whatnot. Do you want to go into your second book that you finished this week? Yes, absolutely. I will do that. So I picked up on a whim, as per usual, <laughs> convenience store woman. <gasps> Yay! Yes. Have you read this book? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I love so, it. So yes. Uh, oh, gosh, this book is so funny. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. Yes, yes, I really, really liked it. I mean, I gave it a four, but not, like, there was no complaint. Awesome. Yeah, this is a five star for me. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, it was very well done. It was very well done. This is another one of those books that I'm glad that I waited till being in Japan to pick up because I think I would have appreciated it mm. in the U.S., but my idea of a convenience store was so different <laughs> before I came to Japan. And being here, like, the reason I picked this book up is because, you know, I go to the konbini, like, probably every day, <laughs> you know, maybe multiple times a day. It's very frequent occurrence. I eat a lot of food from the convenience. It's just like very cheap and there's one like downstairs from my dorm and stuff. So it's like a big part of the lifestyle here. Like almost more than New York bodegas are in my opinion. Like New York bodegas are really big and it's a similar sort of concept where they have a lot of like snack foods and like some hot meals and stuff. But I would say the konbini is even more central to the lifestyle in Japan. Mm. And like I said, what was inspiring me to pick up this book was that I find the atmosphere of a konbini to be such an interesting paradox. Like on one hand, it's this really nice, like manicured, organized space, very clean, very orderly, but it also has this edge of like like nauseating disturbing mm. atmosphere just in the sense that the smell of a konbini it's so subtle like if you're in a konbini for five minutes you probably won't smell it but i've been in them thinking like if i just smell this for eight hours i would go crazy like <laughs> i don't know how i would do it because it smells i mean it's not like a fast food place where like the burnt oil is so permeating your psyche but it's still like this like almost nails on a chalkboard kind of mm. smell mm -hmm. for me i've noticed and like I said, it's not something that like bothers me so much that I don't go into them. Like I still use them like every day, but I don't know how I could work there. I don't know. Not that it's a, a like a, un, a strictly unpleasant job. It's just the smell. I'm very sensitive to smells. And also like the bright neon lights. And it's just a very otherworldly place. And a lot of the time people go in, they're like groggy or they're in a rush. You know, it's open 24-7. So it could be very late at night or it could be early in the morning on your way to work. There are a lot of like situations where people are in the convenience and you don't, like it's not a place you want to stay. It's not an encouraging, it's not a like comfy space, mm. right? And so I started reading this book because I was like, huh, 
no wonder someone wrote a book about what it's like to work at a convenience. Because if she hadn't written this, I feel like I would. You know, <laughs> I feel like I already have a story and I've only been here like two months, three months, whatever. And so I started reading this book. It was so visceral. Yeah. <laughs> like even just like the chirping of like the different call outs that they have in the stores. Mm. Like I can hear it in my head. It's so crazy to read this being here. And I think it just like hit that like extra note of personal connection Mm. because of my current circumstances. I also thought it was a really interesting direction. Like the story took an interesting direction. It's like, what can you really do with a story about a woman that doesn't do very much? Well, I mean, Um, she's she's also particularly, she's definitely neurodivergent. Right. So like a lot of the story is about her need to try and conform to a society that values conformity so strongly. And so there's a lot you can do with that. (laughs) No, absolutely. Absolutely. I thought that was very interesting. I was interested in how it was never like formally addressed, you know, like what this woman has Mm -hmm. or like it kind of is generalized into this like larger, like non-conforming neurodivergency, you know? And I almost would have liked a little bit more of a specific thing only because it for me felt like it was like air on the side of maybe creating a stereotype you know what I mean if it's too general I guess but also I don't know how common that is in Japan to like get diagnosed with stuff like I I don't know like I I'm completely unaware so right yeah I don't know either I would doubt it and I I also in the family that she grew up in I don't know if they would have (laughs) exactly tried very hard to get her diagnosed or I don't know The sisters, like, desperately want her to go to therapy. So I definitely think it's, like, in the conversation. And, like, it's not that I feel like it has to have that. I don't think that, like, strongly took away from it. I think it just, like, made me feel a little bit strange about the book because it did feel like it was fitting into a very generic stereotype Mm. of neurodivergence that kind of didn't feel like it was like authentic to the author's experience or maybe even someone that they knew I don't know that's really interesting that you say that because I feel like that she was such a strong character that I feel like it actually broke out of a lot of those stereotypes in a way that made me Mm. just feel like this is a particularly unique individual I don't think it really matters whether she fits into a certain mold or not this is who she is this is Right. Yeah, like, I wasn't trying to, like, diagnose her with anything. I just was like, this person's definitely neurodivergent of some kind. It's coded in there pretty strongly, but, like, I wasn't trying to, like, (laughs) diagnose anything in particular. It was more just kind of going along for the ride. And it didn't bother me. And it was translated so well that I feel like it didn't bother me. And you know me, like, there's a lot of times in these kinds of stories where it probably would have bothered me, but it just didn't. I found her really lovable. I found all the characters really lovable. And the whole thing's really funny and really dark (laughs) at the same time, which is my jam, honestly. (laughs) So, yeah, Yeah. this is honestly, this book is, like, made for me. I'm so glad this is the first Japanese translated work I ever read, I think. Wait, maybe I'm wrong about that. It was one of the earliest ones, at least, and I just fell in love with it. (laughs) I love it so much. I really, really enjoyed the read. And, you know, I think you're right that, like, there isn't a need to, like, put her into a specific mold or, like, diagnose her. Not that I have any authority to do that anyway, (laughs) like, as neither a doctor nor a neurodivergent person. I think maybe I was just, like, hesitant about it because, I don't know, something about it just sort of, like, tickled me in a way. And I don't know why. I I couldn't, I can't exactly place why. But I don't think that, like, deeply took away from the story. It was just something of note that I thought might be an interesting conversation between the two of us. Yeah, sure. I'm interested to know that you didn't feel that way because maybe it was something I was reading too heavily into. The other thing I'm wondering is, I noticed that you held up a copy of this book. So you read this physically? 
Yes. Ah, okay. So I listened to it and I am wondering whether that made a difference because it was delivered mm. really well in performance. And so I'm wondering whether that would have potentially made a difference to character portrayal. Potentially. I don't know. I felt like I had a really strong sense of her voice mm. in this book. Like her voice came through very clearly. And so it almost felt like an audiobook in my mind, you <laughs> know, like I heard her voice. I don't know if it was that. I'm not sure. Okay. I really don't know. I, I could probably like think on this harder, but I just haven't yet. Cause I literally finished this two hours oh, ago yep, like, no, as totally I woke fun. up. <laughs> and I, I just read it throughout the course of this week. It's quite short. It's like 150 pages. I thought it was totally gripping and entertaining, very cute, very endearing, especially just like seeing her trying to understand the world and it really spoke to something I've seen and heard a lot about Japan which is that it's a place that a lot of neurodivergent people find to be very comfortable because there are a lot of set clear expectations and rules for behavior mm-hmm. that you can like follow those guidelines and not feel the pressure to have to figure out what the rules are mm-hmm. you know like they're very explicit the like polite society rules here so I think it was also interesting to like read this with that sort of in the back of my mind as well mm-hmm. overall I would highly recommend this to anyone whether you're you know in Japan or not honestly I would highly recommend this to Japanese people you know I think this would be a really funny relatable read I'm sure a lot of people do like it and I would also recommend it to people who liked Eileen by Otessa Moshevek I completely understand why Eileen and Convenience Store Woman are two of the top recommendations of the Book Bound podcast mm. because they loved both of these and they're very similar books really? so like I think if you liked this you would like Eileen I think they kind of go well together as like sister stories like a very Japanese version of the story and a very American story on Eileen's end and that sort of both follow a woman who doesn't quite fit into society who keeps a lot of her awareness of her not fitting in to herself you know like she's completely aware that she doesn't fit in in both cases but is very like private about it and is trying to like sort of sneak her way through the world pretending to be a normal person mm-hmm. and so if you liked that vibe in convenience store woman if you like that in vibe in Eileen then I think you would like the reverse I liked it a lot. I'm glad I picked it up. That is my last read for the week. So, cool. I, like I said, just finished it. So, of Otessa's books, probably the ones I would have the best chance of liking would be Eileen and Death in Her Hands, would you say? I would say yeah. so. Yeah. Death in Her Hands has really risen in my mind since I've read it as my favorite Otessa Moshfeg. Mm. I think... Because you like... Like, you, I rated it the same. You originally had A Year of Rest and Relaxation pretty up there in your... This is true. But I will say, like, you know how when you look back and realize how many times you've thought about a book Mm. in retrospect, it really increases the value of the book in your mind? Totally, yeah. That's how I feel about Death in Her Hands. I've thought about that book so many times, Mm. recommended it to so many people. And I think My Year of Rest and Relaxation is a great book, but I honestly think Death in Her Hands was more intriguing yeah. and more like uniquely developed mm-hmm. and stuff and just it told a really great story and I also think that for me specifically my year of rest and relaxation right. would piss me off so uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah definitely definitely I think you wouldn't mind Eileen I mm. think especially like for me maybe because I like a lot of world building in addition to character mm. development that's what made me feel a little bit bored because there was absolutely no plot or world building. But I quite like just character focus, so it should be fine for me. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. I think you wouldn't be too bored by it. And I think, honestly, even if you are bored by it, it's part of the experience. (laughs) And by the end of it, you'll, like, appreciate the time you spent being bored because it's, like, the the intended experience of the book. So, I don't know. Now that I have made that connection, I would recommend that book for you. Okay. 
as well as Death in Her Hands, all right. of course. I'll, I'll put those on the list, because I've been cool. wondering about that, because I kind of just removed all the Otessa Moshvegs from my list, because I was like, eh, I don't know if she's for me, but I think, I think <laughs> those two probably. I'll give them a go. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so I'll finish off with my last two finished reads. So I was trying to finish two books on the last day of October and realised I could not manage both of them because one of them was way too long. So I ended up finishing off October with Space Stars and Slimy Aliens, which was the horrible science book that I was finishing for a couple of prompts for challenges. I ended up giving it three stars. Overall, it was, you know, it, it did what it was supposed to do. It was a little middle grade children's science book. Not even middle grade, it's for children, it's for kids that are probably like eight years old probably eight to ten and you know it does what it's meant to do it takes you through the solar system and a few other space things in a light way it did what it was meant to do will I read it again nah but I'm glad that I've read it once it's another book I own that I can now go yep done and like I said in the last episode it was kind of nice to have supernovas turning into black holes explained to me like I was an eight-year-old so sometimes it's nice to be an eight-year-old again yeah and I would have appreciated this a lot had I read it when I was a kid probably (laughs) the repetitive format of it I don't think I would have enjoyed even as a kid though like oh no that's not true I loved repetitive formats um (laughs) (laughs) young me was even more into organization than current me but there's basically like an ongoing thing where for each planet there's like a log this is how far away it is from earth this is how more or less gravity it has than earth and it's done in a comedic way to make it interesting but it it does get very repetitive if you're reading it just straight through rather than using it as reference and although it's designed to read straight through like it clearly reads kind of as a story because it's got like this alien storyline throughout but you know it's fine three stars probably better if you've got a kid who's interested in reading it And then the last book I've read, I didn't manage to squeeze it into October, unfortunately, but I did get it read on the 2nd of November, so close. I managed to finish Dracula by Bram Stoker, the audiobook. God knows how long it would have taken me to read the physical book. It's a long book. So I gave this 3.5. Dracula started out strong, and at the point at which I spoke to you about this last episode, I was quite happy with it. The first three chapters of this book are very strong and very cool, very gothic. And the first three chapters are the best three chapters of the book. Hmm. That's a disappointment. Yeah, so the whole book is written in a very interesting way. It's all written as a collection of like journal entries and letters, so it's kind of a mystery that you're putting together. And the thing is, if you were reading it at the time it was written, before any other vampire fiction had been written... It would have been fantastic, I'm sure, because it would have actually been a mystery, but knowing all the vampire lore that I know, there was very little to keep me hooked because it was just a very, very slow (laughs) reveal, like so slow, of stuff I already knew. And you don't actually see any of the direct action of, like, you don't see Dracula after the first three chapters. You just get references to what he's done, like you see what's happening to victims, and not even the cool stuff, just like, oh, they're ill. Oh no, we must try and get them Mm. better. Oh, they're not getting better? Oh no. It's just a lot of that. And the victims' personal lives, and them writing letters to each other about their personal lives. And that's all well and good, but I came here for a horror story, and I didn't really get much of one, except for in the first three chapters. Interesting. I did not expect that. 
It's, I can understand now why it's one of the most, like, <laughs> Lena Norms, I noticed DNF'd this and left a comment on the DNF on Storygraph that just said, life is too short. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, I have other people in my Storygraph who have rated this four or five stars, but I did have other people say, like, good luck to me when I started reading it. So clearly this is a bit divisive, but a lot of people do say that, you know, it's probably not worth it. I'm one of those people. I did give it 3.5 because overall I did enjoy it as an experience. I'm glad that I've read it. The first three chapters were fantastic and the writing overall was really good. The atmosphere was pretty good. The first three chapters of atmosphere were fantastic. The overall plot was good and there were bits of the story that I enjoyed but there was just mm. a lot of it that was... Yeah, it was just unfortunate. I had to keep reminding myself of what it would have been like to read when we didn't already know all the vampire lore and it's just a shame mm. that there's nothing in it that is interesting. You know how with some mystery books, even when you already know, you can reread them because even though you already know what's going to happen at the end, it's still fun to read them and see the clues and go through and be like, oh, that's what that clue was. And you know, this was not like that. The pace is just so slow and so much of a slog that even knowing what the clues were and going, oh yes, that's what that clue is. It was just like, uh-huh, yep, get it. Yeah, we get it, uh-huh, yep. And all this extra stuff and it just didn't work for me. Mm. So yeah, I'm glad I didn't read it physically. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I had to listen to it over way more days than I expected I would have to. And not just because it's long, just because like I had to take breaks. Because <laughs> I was like, I have had enough of this for a little bit. I'm just getting bored. And I kept catching myself not listening. All of that being said, it is written well. There are some people I know who really appreciate it. So, you know, I'm not saying it's not a worthwhile book. I'm not saying it's Moby Dick, which I would actively say, don't read this to everyone. It's not worth <laughs> it. It's way too long. Don't do it. It's not that level of it's too long, don't do it. I would just say if you're enjoying the first three chapters and you want to try going on, great. If you read the first three chapters and then the next two or three chapters aren't doing it for you, stop. It doesn't get better. I wish it did. <laughs> I wish I could tell you it did. It doesn't. I'm sorry, mm. but it doesn't. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. That's a harsh review. Yeah. Did I ever tell you I went to Romania and visited the Dracula castle? That's the awesome. castle that inspired the story. That is awesome. Ron Castle. That yeah, makes it look, I mean... a cool place. I did appreciate getting... And that's the other reason I got 3.5 instead of any lower is because I did, as someone who's a fan of some vampire stuff, did really appreciate getting to see the original lore and finding out where some of the references for things come from. Mm -hmm. So that part of it I actually did enjoy. Occasionally I would come across something I'm like, oh, that's really fun. And, you know, th there's a show called Young Dracula, which is, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's mm -hmm. a British, very low budget, the first season, but it gets better from there. But it's a British show filmed in Wales, I think. There's characters in that that I didn't realise where they'd come from and I kind of found out from this book there's a character called Renfield in the show who's used as comic relief mm -hmm. but I didn't actually really know because he's not really in a lot of other more modern remakes of vampire things and so I didn't really know what his purpose was in the original story I found out that so that was good his storyline was actually very interesting but that was the only one <laughs> and everything else was like we could have condensed this it could have been shorter is my overall complaint 
basically. Could have been shorter, could have had more actual Dracula <laughs> action. Dracula was lacking in the Dracula department. Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate, but at least you read it. And you know what? It's probably on that scratch-off list behind you. It is definitely on that. I'm, <laughs> I'm like 96% sure that it's on that poster. <laughs> One day you'll scratch them off. I will. I will. It'll be such a satisfying day. It will. Alrighty, so let's get into... Here's what we're currently reading. Okay, so this is the section in which we talk about what we're currently reading. I have one. Well, it's, I kind of have one. It's the read-along that I'm always doing. I don't actually have my main current book because I needed a break from proper reading after I finished Dracula. <laughs> so I haven't Fair. started my next book yet. How many are you currently reading? I guess technically two. Okay, great, cool. Do you want to start? Sure. So one that I'll start us off with is Dune. I'm continuing oh, to great. read Dune. I'm almost at the third book portion. I've definitely passed the mark of the end of the first movie. Mm-hmm. I kind of have a suspicion I might finish it. I've been really oh, vibing with it lately. Fantastic. I mean, listen, there's still many, many, many hours of this book left in the audiobook format that I'm listening to. Mm. However, I feel like once you get into that third trimester, you, you just want to power through. Like, <laughs> the third trimester? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> of the book? <laughs> I love you just that. have to get to the end. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel like that's going to come on. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. No real new things to report on. Cool. I will say I like the way that the story is developing. I thoroughly enjoy the characters. Mm-hmm. The world building is great. It's so atmospheric. Like, I mean, there's not like a ton of plot. There's a lot of political like background plot setup going on mm. for maybe implied future battle between two big houses type of thing. I don't know. But it's like not the kind of book that I think you would like. I don't think you would like this book. <laughs> I think you'd be very bored by this book. Sounds but like for it. me, it's just like a great like nighttime read, <laughs> you know, just like going to bed and like listening to the in on different parts of the story. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to say that is a little bit disturbing about it and is mm-hmm. sort of a product of the time, but I just want to like mention it before I forget because I think it's been like creeping up on me and it's something I thought about talking about today. Which there are two like slightly dated elements to the story that just don't feel like they're adding much and kind of have a negative vibe. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not letting them overtake my feelings for the book because it's not like a huge part of the book. But okay, so there's there's this one villain. I mean, the main villain, the Harkonnen Baron. He is like the guy who's out to undermine the goodwilled family that is like the main characters, the Atreides. And I just don't love the way that his like evilness is sort of like intrinsically tied to a his fatness like he's very fat Mm. like so fat that he has to be like suspended by a machine type of thing and there's a lot of offhand comments to like his nephew who's going to like overtake him as baron of like oh good thing you're not as fat as your uncle or whatever so there's a lot of like fat shaming that just doesn't feel super necessary it kind of feels the kind of stuff you'd hear I don't know if this was written in, like 80s or 90s but like the kind of stuff you hear is like I don't know just like offhand unnecessary fat shaming you know or like you know how there's a lot of complaints about like evil villain women how they're like always ugly 
you know, or yeah. like how they're always like old and Crows. not like yeah. conventionally, yeah, attractive. Yeah. It's sort of a similar vibe where it's yeah. like evil is being connected to this physical, well, not attractive by communal standard or not communal, but like societal standard quality. You know what I mean? Considering this is the sixties that was written in. Oh, is it the sixties? Yeah, I think it's more likely. Yeah, Dune was like nineteen sixty-five. I think it's more likely to be a commentary about laziness. If it's a fat mm. man. Yeah. And it is also than, laziness for Yeah, sure. I think it's probably more that than like an aesthetic thing. Because mm. I don't think in the 60s they would have really been making commentary about fat shaming a fat man more generally than that. I think it probably is a commentary on oh, laziness. Oh yeah, no, I definitely than... think it's a commentary on that. Yeah. For sure. So I think it's a, I don't think it's essentially like an ugliness thing. I think it's more of a yeah, laziness I, thing. Like a, I think that's correct. Like a job of the heart kind yeah, of situation. that's exactly how it feels. That's yeah. exactly how it feels and like like i said it's of its time and it's not like this main villain is in every chapter so it's not like inescapable in the book but it just is from time to time like a lot of comments like that and it's just kind of icky so i thought i'd mention it as like a trigger warning maybe just a heads up you know for anyone reading this book who might be sensitive to that it's not particularly necessary to the story i mean i think it's used intentionally obviously Mm. But it's just like has those icky moments where it's like a little cringe well, does, moment. Does so knowing that it's written in the 60s rather than the 90s make it different in I your mean, head? Because it would for me. <laughs> vaguely, but also not that much. Okay. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know. It's not even like a big comment. It was just something that like had crossed my mind because it okay. kept coming up. And I was just like, mm, I just don't like this icky portrayal. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it enough. just feels gross. I think maybe another reason why it stuck out to me and like particularly bothered me was thinking about the demographic of this book and how it's mainly for men you know and probably particularly like (laughs) younger men and how I think this is still such a pervasive thing that even if men don't talk about it as much there's still so many men who have this association of being larger as a product of laziness Mm. or greed or gluttony oh which is only increasing again thanks to andrew tate and his cronies right exactly i think see this is kind of exactly where my frustration is coming from i think i'm getting to the bottom of it because like i'm thinking about this demographic of people and like i've met guys like this they're Mm. so gross and annoying (laughs) and like I don't care if you were born in the 60s or like this was written in the 60s like I mean people who were born in the 60s or even like teenagers in the 60s are still alive I still don't think you know I don't know it's just like an annoying pervasive sort of ideology that I think is really hidden I think a lot of guys pretend they don't feel this way Mm. when they do and like it's just annoying I think it just like bugs me like I said I've just interacted with too many guys who say these kinds of things and I'm like gross fair enough anyway that was the first one the second one that also is about the same character that sort of bothered me was he's the only character I think who is described as having any sort of like queer identity like he sleeps with young boys this um Mm. like old baron person and it's very much a part of his villain aesthetic how young it's like boys 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 okay well i mean well no like it's it's explicitly like non-consensual relationships like slave boys or whatever but my issue is not with like the presence of slaves in this book it's more the association of queerness with villainy 
you know? I mean... Like, this amoral, disgusting character who's gluttonous happens to be the only queer character. Again, not a critique of the 60s. I recognize it's a thing of the time. It's just, like, something that keeps sticking out to me. But also, if it's only boys, like, young boys, I would argue he's not a queer character. Uh, yeah, I mean... I would argue he's a pedophile. Right, right. I mean, yes, that too. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't mention him being with women, really, I don't think. I don't know. Regardless, I think the the implication of, like, homosexuality in this book has a very negative connotation because it's associated with this pedophilic behavior exclusively. Right. And that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. (sighs) Again, to say for the millionth time... It's a product of its time, and I'm not judging it, and I'm not expecting it to be something that it's not. These are just things that stuck out to me and maybe inhibited a little bit of my own personal investment in the story. At least in the specific portions having to do with this villain character. Like, I like a villain that I can at least somewhat root for, you know? Or, -hmm. like, if not root for, then, like have a little bit of investment in. Not like root for in that I want the bad guy to win, but just because it's like exciting. You know, like I want to care about this person a little bit and like their mission. I want to to at least you know, make sense. Well like be I want it to make sense or have some I want there kind to be some I want there to be a challenge to me. Yeah. I want to be challenged by the author into questioning the complexity of the villain character. And I think these elements are making the villain characters sort of moments and portrayals to be kind of like flat and ignorable and it's not like a majority of the book I would say maybe it's 10 to 20 percent of the book or like parts like with this perspective maybe more maybe 30 percent at max but I just find it to be just like off-putting and not really adding very much to the Mm. story because even though you're getting some like background on what the opposition side is thinking and planning it's just not as pleasant. It's not as exciting. Yeah. I just care so much more about a young boy and his mother who are lost in the desert mm-hmm. or who are, like, befriending this tribe of natives on the planet. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, they totally. just have a much more interesting storyline. And almost like, okay, like, for instance, with the Baron, he has this nephew who's going to succeed him. If there was something, I want to say, like, Draco Malfoy-esque about the nephew where, like, his morals are coming into question about, like, is he a bad person or is he just raised by bad people? Or, like, where can he, like, toe the line on that? Like, if I had some sort of investment in the person who succeeds this sort of gross Baron character, Mm -hmm. then I might care more for those parts, but... I don't know. I feel like characters feel pretty one-dimensional, at least at this point. And Mm -hmm. it just feels like a boring portion when I get to those parts. But also, this book is, like, written specifically as, like... I mean, I don't want to say, like, for boys, but also, yes, it's written for boys. (laughs) And I'm not the the average boy book consumer. Fair enough. (laughs) I do like me some romanticized fantasy, and that's not what this is. But I am enjoying the parts that show more, like, character depth on the side of the hero and the like underdogs of the story that's the part that I've been connecting to more mm-hmm. and thankfully that's the majority of the book okay anyway what's your current read of the moment this month Audrey's read-along is what two books we're doing this month it's a Tolstoy Kafka Ooh. mix so the first book is that sounds fun yeah the first book is The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy and I've read the first three chapters of that it's surprisingly funny I was not expecting, ah. I, I mean, I've never read Tolstoy, but he's the Anna Karenina guy, right? Yeah, I'm pretty so sure. So I was not expecting humor because I've heard that that's kind of a bleak book. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite amusing. It's basically 
the story of the everyman and it's kind of sad but it's you know like essentially this guy is meant to be very much the representation of a very comfortable you know he, he, wealth wise he's very comfortable he's got a very average life <laughs> and the book opens with his death and then you go back to his life and it's interesting because like you see the dynamics of what happens at his funeral or what people are thinking about him and talking about him and you start there and then you go back and see what he was like during his life to have ended up with people talking about him in these certain ways and I won't give away any more than that because it's part of the whole experience but it's described as sometimes funny often bleak so far it's just been funny but I assume the bleakness is more dispersed. I mean, the first chapter was pretty bleak, that, that's the funeral part, but the second and third chapters were quite funny. It was a lot of very recognisable, relatable humour, a lot of one-liners. There's really unique th things that he does about lumping in things in one sentence that really shouldn't be lumped in together. There's a lot of lines that after he says it, you kind of go, wait, what? <laughs> what did you say? There's just some very interesting lines in there. The guide on it so far for the three chapters I've read is really good, and I've been really enjoying having because I miss certain lines as they go past my ears occasionally but like some of the better ones are being picked out by the guide and being like look at notice this one wasn't that good and I'm like oh I didn't even notice that one that was great mm. so the guide for this one's really good so far I'm really enjoying it I'm really looking forward to continuing that that sounds great mm. love to hear it what's your other book that you're currently reading I've only gotten a couple pages into this book and I'm already a little bit hesitant on it. It's oh, no. one of the ones I brought from home and it's a reread uh -oh. from the olden days. It's called These Broken Stars by Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner. The gist of the story is that it is Titanic in space. So there's like oh, a yeah. very rich like space liner that crashes and the only two survivors are a rich boy, poor girl. Wait, sorry, opposite rich girl, poor boy, and they're like enemies to lovers type of romance, sci-fi romance story. Yeah, I think you've um, talked about this Loved, one. loved this. Yeah, I'm, I have a feeling I have. Loved this book back in the day. This is not the only book I own by them. I also own the second book in the series, This Shattered Light. There are three total in this mm -hmm. trilogy that all sort of focus on different characters. I think they're all enemies to lovers type of characters within the same world, not, but they don't all like know each other type of thing. Mm -hmm. It's just like in the same like universe. And I used to own another book by Amy Kaufman, who's one of the writers of this series, called Illuminae, which went with a whole, I think, trilogy or duology something, uh, another sci-fi YA that I tried reading a while ago for the first time. It was one that I had like bought back in the day and hadn't ever read, mm. and I wanted to like give it a shot and could not get through it. Mm. The dialogue and the characters were just like painfully immature oh and cringeworthy and melodramatic. Didn't feel like a portrayal of adolescence that felt authentic or like did justice to real adolescence. So that was not an encouraging sign. And I have to say, I am a couple pages into this and it does have that element of like slightly cringy, or I wouldn't even say slightly, just like plain cringy dialogue mm. or like internal narration from these like teenage characters. It's a little cringy. I'm gonna power through because I brought these two books all the way to Japan and 
I'm really truly looking for things to get rid of on my way back because I don't know if I'm gonna have enough space in my suitcases mm -hmm. for all the stuff I've acquired. So I'm gonna really prioritize reading through these books and I might just like audiobook them if I can't stand it. That might actually make the dialogue easier to yeah. digest and maybe make the story more enjoyable. But yeah, if these don't work out, it's not the end of the world because I can just ditch them. Or at least I can ditch this shattered light because these broken stars is one that I borrowed from my friend. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, so that's where I'm at with that. Like I said, not very far into it, just immediate impressions. And I think I'm going to continue on with the audiobook alongside the text and mm -hmm. see if that helps at all. Okay, well, best of luck. Hope it improves. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's do you have a hole this week? No hole. I do. Ooh, okay. So give it to us. It's a very small hole. It's a single book. This popped up as a book of the day recently, and I decided that it deserved to be bought in paperback. And wow. I'll show you why. It is called Art Words, and oh. the premise of this is something I think you will be very interested in. It's yeah. essentially a book of visual poems. The woman who published this, Beatrice M. Robles, did a fine arts degree with a major in creative writing. She's done a lot of solo art exhibitions, and so she's very interested in both visual arts and writing. And what she's done is, in this particular volume, she's collected a bunch of poems that are also artworks. And so it's basically art created with words. And it reminded me Ooh. so much of the kind of stuff you've been talking to me about for your projects you're doing. Ah, love. This collection includes some calligrams, which I'd never heard of before, but I think it's like words creating pictures, I assume, from the name. Photographs and redactive poetry. And it was redactive poetry that reminded me of like the thing you're doing mm -hmm. for your like book finding project. And yeah, I saw this and I really wanted to see it properly because like on Kindle, like you can't see colors and on the app, it's just so tiny on the screen. And I figured, why not? Because like worst case scenario, I have a pretty poetry book in my collection. Even if the poems themselves aren't that good, I have like some pretty art in my collection yeah. like I'm happy to pay a little bit more for a little book of art why not you know supporting artists yeah. so yeah I've, I've got that in my collection now and I'll let you know how it is I'm quite excited it's something really different I love poetry in general and I'm really starting to appreciate art more as I have more time to do so now than ever in my life yeah so I love that I figured why the hell not I will let you know how it is I'm excited to hear about it. Should I go into a TBR yeah. for me? I don't know if this is a book that I got recommended in class or from a podcast. I don't think it was you, but it honestly could have been. I have literally no recollection <laughs> where it was it came. me. I'll stop from. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could have come from Jack Edwards. I feel like that's kind of the most likely one. I don't know. But brace yourself. It's called Toddler Hunting and Other Stories. Okay, that definitely was not me. <laughs> yeah, by <laughs> Kono Teka. It's a Japanese translated literature book. I picked it up from the library at my school. And I have no idea what this book is about. Like I said, I don't even remember where I found it, but I had screenshotted the code to find it in my school's library when I looked it up originally, and I just decided to grab it because that is just such an intriguing title. How could I not, you know? I have a feeling that it's not like 
toddler hunting as in like killing toddlers. I have a feeling it's like commentary on motherhood and like observing mothers and children. That's just my hunch because a lot of Japanese literature I feel like I've read recently, including Convenience Store Woman and Diary of a Void. And just like, I don't know, motherhood is a really, really central theme, obviously in all cultures, but I think specifically in Japan. And I just have a sense that that's what it's referring to. So I don't think it's actually like going to be like horror stories. Mm -hmm. If it is, oh my God. Please hope for the best. It's, I really hope it's not. I don't want to read about toddlers being hunted. That was not the hope when I picked this up, oddly enough. But yeah. Considering you did pick this up from someone recommending it to you, it probably isn't. Yeah, it probably isn't. It really isn't. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, I have to return this by December like 5th or something, so mm. it will probably be read. I mean, you know, to be honest, I have like a stack of like five different books or more maybe that I've picked up from the library that are all due December whatever that I haven't started. So will I finish all of these? Probably not. Will Toddler Hunting be one of them? I don't know. If it's not, it will remain on my TBR, so it remains to be a TBR pick. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> shall we move on to the final segment of the day? Yes, so we have... Monthly Challenge Check-In. This is the section where I do a little wrap-up of my monthly challenge reading, because we all know, regular listeners will know at least, that I love to commit myself to way too many book clubs and challenges, and so I need like a whole section every month to keep accountability for that. So, let's do this. So, for the first time ever, I am coming to you at a challenge report having not completed a book in time. Whoa! Whoa. Yep. Crazy. You know what? I'm going to say something radical. It's okay. <laughs> I, uh, I, did, it's okay. I did say at the beginning of the September-October challenge transition that I may have bitten off more than I could chew for October. I was correct. One book did not make it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, only one? That's impressive. Yep. I mean, I did read 12 books in October, so the fact that the 13th did not make it is okay, I think. I'll read it this month instead. It's fine. <laughs> Wait, did you say the 13th didn't make it? Actually, technically, technically, I also didn't read Dracula. I didn't finish Dracula in... Yeah, it's, it's similar. But, like, I read most I of it say, in October. <laughs> so, I'm counting that I feel like that's so one. on theme, though. That's so on theme. You didn't read the unlucky 13th book. <laughs> technically, that Dracula was... was destined okay, to technically, happen. Dracula was the 13th book. This is the 14th book. Okay. So, yeah. but Dracula was unlucky for me. In that I couldn't get it done in time, even though I've spent so much time trying to. Anyway, the book that I didn't finish was for Buzzwords. I did put that last in my priority list just because, like, it's the least kind of time-sensitive of all my challenges, and the months kind of can flow together, so I'm not really that worried about it. So, yeah, Buzzwords for October was Magic Words. I said I would read The Eve Illusion. I did not get around to that. That is the next book I will be reading for... November, the word for buzzwords is good, so the title has to include the word good in there somewhere. It could be in, like, the word goodness or whatever, but, like, the word good has to be in the title. I didn't have a book I own already that actually has the word good in it, weirdly. I think I've just happened to have read all the books I own that have the word good in the actual title. I didn't want to go with one that has it in the subtitle of a non-fiction. It just, I don't know, it just didn't seem like it counted properly to me. So I'm going to be reading The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford, which is on my TBR because it's in the Rory Gilmore reading challenge. I don't actually know. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have news. What? Sorry, can I interrupt you? Please. 
Guess what? Are you watching Gilmore Girls? I started Girls? watching Gilmore Girls. <gasps> Are you loving it? Yes, I'm actually savoring it. Like, I, I'm oh, not yay. rushing through it because I don't want it to be good. over. And That's I've good only watched two episodes oh, so good. far. Oh, good, 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 good. Oh, yay, finally. I'm so- <laughs> I knew you'd love it. I knew you would love it. Yeah, no, it's so cute. I knew I would love it too. I just, I don't know. I think I get intimidated by series. Also, I'm just not so much of a TV movie person. But, hey. I'm into it, so you'll, you'll probably hear updates on that eventually. Oh, I'm so glad. Anyway, I don't actually know what this book's about at all, so I'll just read a description. The Good Soldier is a story about the complex social and sexual relationships between two couples, one English, one American, and the growing awareness of American narrator John Dowell of the intrigues and passions behind their orderly Edwardian facade. It is Dowell's attitude, his puzzlement, uncertainty, and the seemingly haphazard manner of his narration that makes the book so powerful and mysterious. In Ford's brilliantly woven tale, nothing is quite what it seems. Despite its catalogue of death, insanity, and despair, this novel has many comic moments and has inspired the work of several distinguished writers, including Graham Greene. Cool. <laughs> that tells me almost nothing about the story, and I'm into that. <laughs> Probably for the best. It sounds like it's going to be mostly about exploring complexities of human relationships and stuff like that, which very much my vibe, so... Never fails to disappoint? Yep, happy about that. The Gumption Club read for October, I actually thankfully didn't have to do because it was Northanger Abbey, which I read last year and gave 4.5 stars last year. We did actually do, just the other day, a really fun watch-along party of an adaptation of it. I can't remember what year it came out, but the main character in it is played by Felicity Jones and one of the other characters is played by Carrie Mulligan and it was such fun watching it with a whole bunch of people who've just read the book recently and I'm so glad we watched that as a refresher because my memory for character names (laughs) for any book that I haven't honestly even for books that I've just read but like especially for books that I haven't read in over a year awful so I'm so so glad that we read that because now for the book club that I've got on I think it's tonight actually I'll actually know (laughs) for sure who all the characters are I won't have to keep trying to remember from context clues I also I looked it up It's 2007. 2007. Thank you. Now editing Emma doesn't have to do that extra note. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. You've made editing Emma's job a little easier. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) In November, we're going to be reading Equal Rights by Terry Pratchett. This is the first Terry Pratchett I've ever read, and I'm a little intimidated. It is one of the Discworld (laughs) collection. I was worried going in because I thought that we would just be thrown in because it's like book number three, I think, in the Discworld series. But apparently I looked it up and it's the first of like the witch sub-series within the Discworld collection. So it's one of the starting places that people recommend for that story subline. I don't know. Discworld's a confusing thing. There's so many books and there's so many different ways you can read it. But yeah, this is the one we're reading and apparently it can be a starting place so we won't be missing any particular context. I don't have super high hopes for this to be completely honest. I don't think it's going to be my thing but hey we'll see what happens. This is something I actually really want to read. Not this particular one but just Discworld in general. Yeah, this seems like it'll be much more your thing than mine. (laughs) It's all very, like, creating new worlds and stuff. I don't have the brain space for stuff like that. I'm generally not interested in creating new worlds. I can't hold on to that kind of information. I just, I, I just can't. I can't do it, man. can't do it. Hey, listen, the world we have is enough. Exactly. I'll that's That's what I'm saying. Like, I can't hold on to enough of that information. 
<laughs> That's why stuff like Dune and, you know, The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and stuff like that doesn't interest me that much. It's because, like, there's too much lore to hold on to, man. I got enough lore from the real world. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I don't blame you. I need to be thrown into something new. Anyway. I think I go for it for better lore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair. Whoever wrote this lore in the real world, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have some critique. <laughs> Yeah, there's that. Reading Around the World, still on hiatus for October and November, but it will finally be coming back in December, so there will be updates for that <laughs> eventually soon-ish. Not that soon. Not that far away either, though. <laughs> it's November. Crazy. Yep. Honestly, by the time listeners are hearing this, it probably is December. I'm so sorry. I'm still so behind <laughs> in editing. For Mooney's Book Club, in October, we read A Study in Drowning. That was a 3.5. Very meh to me. In November, we'll be reading Station Eleven by Emily Johnson... St. John... Oh, God, I can never remember her surname. Emily St. John Mendel. That's the one. <laughs> wait, wait, when are you reading that? This month. Dude, I brought it. No way! I have it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Station Eleven. Cool! I have it. Impromptu book talk so, coming up, probably. Yeah, why the hell not? As previously stated, Audrey read-alongs, I'm not even gonna bother listing all the different Oscar Wildes we read, because there were like five of them, <laughs> plus short story, well, four plus a three short story collection. Big variety of results from that. Picture of Dorian Gray came out a clear winner, though. November we'll be reading The Death of Ivan Ilyich and Metamorphosis by Kafka. Obviously the first one by Tolstoy, second one by Kafka. I did complete all the books for the Fantasy Fellowship's Monster Manor thing. I just didn't manage to do them all within the time limit, so I got six out of seven done within the time limit. Dracula eluded me. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because I had to squeeze in The Uninhabitable Earth before the 31st. If I hadn't had to read that, Dracula I definitely would have got done, but I did have to read that before the 31st. I didn't have a choice on the timeline with that one. What was the book that we talked about you starting in October that I don't think you did, but, like, it's okay, that oh, we yeah, wanted the, you to? Um, it's fine, I do have it on my next up list, which is how I fixed mm. that, because I knew I wasn't going to be able to fit it into the month. That was, by accident, A Memoir of Letting Go by Joanne Green. Right. Yeah. Right, it right. is on my next up list, which means that once I finish my challenge books for this month, I will read that after that. That's how the next up list works. How often have you used the next up list this year? Oh, fairly regularly. It's just that the last couple of months have been insane, because it was mm. readathon month in August, and then October I picked right, up that extra... Right readathon for spooktober so whoops <laughs> yeah it's okay it's okay i was just curious just fyi wide sug soc is also very high on the next up list nice yeah as are the other hunger games books lovely and lovely. two books i borrowed from people <laughs> <clears throat> Anyway, for Adventure in Eldia, in October I chose the path to Stargaze, which was to read a book with stars on the cover. That was Space Stars and Flaming Aliens, which I gave three stars. In November I'm choosing the path of Visit the Old Favor Pass, which means I need to read a book in a winter setting. When I tell you that I tried so hard to figure out if any of the books that I'm about to read this month take place in a winter setting, none of these have a clear winter setting in them really so I'm just gonna read the Snow Queen or something just like a little fairy tale mm. that will only take me 
a short time. And also just because I haven't actually read the original Snow Queen and I quite like reading original fairy tales because they're usually bleak. Yeah. yeah Especially yeah. the Hans Christian Andersen and the Grimm's Brothers ones tend to be bleak because that's one of Hans Christian Andersen's ones and I vaguely remember, I, I've heard a retelling of it and I'm pretty sure that one's pretty bleak especially so I do actually quite want to read that at some point so why not. So, yes, that I think is all for the challenge update. All oh, right, scarf, forgot. I am so behind on the scarf. As I said, I read 12 books in October. I have crocheted one of those. I'm 11, <laughs> I'm 11 stripes behind, mostly because my hands have not been behaving themselves, but I'm sure that by the time I get around to editing this episode, I will have an updated scarf. I will put that picture in an Imgur album in the show notes for you guys. Wonderful. I look forward to seeing it. Alrighty. Thank you everyone for listening. We have been Books Without Borders. As always, you can contact us via email at bookswithoutborderspod at gmail.com. That's bookswithoutborderspod at gmail.com. Every book that we mentioned in this episode is listed in our show notes, along with other stuff that we mentioned as well. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.